The Dime is sponsored by ETH Revolution. The cannabis industry has unique challenges, which means you need a multifaceted partner to help you navigate the landscape. ETH Revolution has a team of experienced science and business experts to provide a unique analytical approach, providing services from capital to cannabinoid and everything in between. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. As always, I've got my right-hand man, Kellen Finney, here with me. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Matthew O'Brien, Managing Editor, Founder of 4PM. Matt, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I've never been better, and I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, we're excited to dive in. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Just enjoying the summer out here in Colorado. How are you, Brian? Doing well. Didn't have a great night's sleep last night, but water under the bridge. Let's get after it. Um, <laughs> Matt, before we kind of dive into the hard-hitting questions, I'd love to kind of get a little background about you and how you got into the cannabis space. So my journey in cannabis really started back in 2016. I was actually in Ireland at the time, and I read a book called Narc Economics, which laid out a rather pragmatic argument as to why we as a sort of species, or species or civilization rather, I should say, should effectively embrace this concept of legalizing all drugs. And at the time, I was growing up in a pretty rural part of Donegal, which is in the northern part of Ireland, and very sort of dogmatic viewpoints on a variety of subjects, whether that be, you know, people attending church, sort of women's rights, et cetera, et cetera. So this was like very much came in conflict with my sort of worldview. And I just couldn't deny the merit of the arguments that were being made. Quickly realized that if I wanted to sort of pursue this path, Ireland was not the place to do so. Realized that Canada was on the path to legalize cannabis in the upcoming months. And then, yeah, effectively decided to, to pack up my things with a relatively short amount or a relatively small amount of money, headed off into the great north. And uh, yeah, haven't really looked back since. And 4 p.m., can you kind of share a little bit about what that is? Yeah, for sure. So for myself, I've been extremely fortunate to have worked in pretty much every single vertical of the cannabis industry. Started off bud tending, have managed stores, have managed supply chains. I've worked with you know every single person that operates in the industry, I've probably had some sort of relationship with them in my prior occupations. And I often just felt that there was a, an absence of a publication specifically for cannabis professionals. I feel like there's a lot of good publications out there for sort of consumers, whether that be like a Leafly or one of the others, whether that be like the Canigma. And as a cannabis professional, I just felt that someone needed to be able to summarize the most relevant events that were occurring for me as an industry professional such that I could continue to progress in the industry with an informed perspective. And it was honestly just one of these things whereby nobody else seemed like they were going to do it. So I just took it upon myself to sort of pick up that baton. Yeah, I love it. And I guess from my perspective, there's, like you were saying, tons of opportunities in the space and tons of journalists. And yours is one that I look forward to on a regular basis. And it's one of those where if I don't get it that day, I look, I grab it the next day. And it's always one of those where I really commend what you're doing because it's not an easy challenge to kind of take on obviously selecting a topic and then just talking through some original content. So I guess an easy question would be, take us through the approach from a day-to-day standpoint. You know, when you sit down, you're like, all right, I'm going to write about this topic. How do you kind of go through that process? So my sort of trade secret is that the first three hours of my day is really just looking at every single publication in the industry itself, you know, using platforms like Reddit, using platforms like LinkedIn, Twitter, just trying to get a sense and kind of get my pulse on, like, what are people talking about? What's, what's happening in the industry from a sort of global perspective? And I consider myself to be someone who's like pretty well plugged in. So more often than not, if something's going to happen, I'll have someone informing me ahead of time, you know, this should be on your radar. There's going to be a press release coming your way. There might be like a deadlock on when you can talk about it. But usually I kind of know what's going to happen ever before anyone else, because I have those relationships in place. 
So first three hours of the day is really just trying to do like a pretty broad analysis of what's occurring in the industry, as I said, from a global standpoint. And then for the next hour thereafter, it's really just about refining, like, what do I want to talk about? Putting myself in the shoes of a cannabis professional. If I'm hustling like every single person who works in this industry, what information do I actually need? And really emphasizing that the need as opposed to want. And then, yeah, from there, it's really just about me writing it in such a way whereby when someone receives this, they want to open it. They're able to understand what I'm saying. There's no corporate bullshit. We're just telling it exactly how it is. Yeah. And at the end of every article, you have the, and I'm probably going to say it wrong, your take on it, which I think is the perfect way because so many people kind of describe what's going on. But the reason I come back is is not so you to summarize the articles I read. I'm looking for Mm -hmm. your perspective and I enjoy that. So the one I wanted to dive into today was one that I thought was really interesting, the built by the bud tender theory. Can you kind of shed some light on that, what that means and kind of how that came about? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So my my humble opinion is that there's a huge disconnect in the cannabis industry from an executive level versus that of what's actually happening on the ground. I feel like there's a lot of people coming into this industry from regulated CPG industries, whether that be the alcoholage beverage industry, whether that be tobacco. And they're trying to use these sort of frameworks to understand like what's happening in cannabis. But my perspective is that I think there's a lot of shortcomings in that approach. I think that granted those industries have similarities, but at the end of the day, like they are miles apart. If you think cannabis is, is tobacco or alcohol, then you don't understand cannabis. And that might sound like a, a cynical statement, but that, that to me is just a, a fact. And I feel like a lot of these individuals are very over-dependent upon spreadsheets. No offense to you know some of the sort of data providers that are out there, but at the end of the day, like there is only so much insight you can extract from these reports Whereas if you're a blood tender, you're on the ground, you're having conversations with consumers on a day-to-day basis, you actually understand what's happening in cannabis a lot of time, very far ahead of time before it'll ever arrive at any of these people's desks. So my perspective is that I think there will be many very successful cannabis companies built by blood tenders based upon the insights we start gathering in lifetime. And that really sort of speaks to how long it takes for these insights to arrive on these people's desks. And I think even when they do they don't really understand it for what it is because they don't understand the industry. And the only way you're going to understand the industry is to understand a consumer. And my perspective is that if you want to understand a consumer, work in a cannabis retail store for you know a week at the very least, ideally a little bit more than that, take the time to understand what consumers want, and then work back from there. I think that's perfectly said. I just want to push back on the Excel sheet nerds out there. I yeah, think yeah. for Kelly and I, those are, that's kind of like the domains we operate in. So Kyle has to see with that, but totally understand what you're saying. Kellen, kind of take that, dive into that a little bit, kind of expand. Oh, no, I, that statement? I do. Honestly, Matt, we're going to be great friends for sure. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I got started by working in the industry, right? Spent a lot of time as like in the lab, worked my way up, lab manager, Batixi, cultivation, vertically integrated and all these things. And the biggest mistake that I saw in the industry once I started consulting was you would come up with these groups that are very business oriented as far as the team members and they're taught you're having conversations um, prior to building facilities. And they're like, well, if we just change this one variable in the Excel sheet, look how much more money we can make. Right. right? And they, they don't understand that. Like, actually, if you change that variable, it's going to create a really low end product. And you're going to end up not selling it, or you're going to have all these issues in the actual growing or cultivation of it. Um, if you start cutting corners here. And so there's a ton of nuanced items that go into designing these companies that I think that a lot of them right now are flawed and they're, they're going to spend a ton of money learning the hard way. And so I do think that bud tenders potentially, or individuals who have kind of worked their way up from the the ground up in these organizations, Mm -hmm. and hopefully they get promoted to positions of decision-making power, 
to kind of help drive these uh, these shifts, if you will. Because, I mean, time and time again, in, at least in the U.S., in our kind of adult and medical market, I have a ton of friends that are down in Florida that say that they quit purchasing products from the dispensaries in Florida because the, they can get better products from the black market because they're just all of these massive facilities have been cutting corners. And they're like, hey, well, if we just add another 500 square feet to each bloom room, look, we're going to grow 20 times more biomass and now we'll make more revenue and our shareholders will be happy. But turns out when you add that extra 500 square feet, you encounter all these issues with pest mitigation and proper uh, light distribution and watering. And then that creates a ton of problems in terms of the actual growth cycle of the plant. And so it's just systemic, right? Like they just don't understand that cutting corners in specific areas right now cause a ton of issues downstream from a processing perspective. And so I couldn't agree more with that, that statement as far as I think that the, the really, really successful cannabis companies in 20, 50 years are not going to be the top 10 companies right now, in my opinion, for my more. perception as well. There's so much to unpack in so many different directions. So I guess my, my first one would be like organizations. I'm not so familiar with the type of educational policies that go on with the bud tenders to kind of walk through, you know, making sure that they are armed and equipped with the correct type of information. Mm-hmm. But at the same part, from a leadership standpoint, obviously being with your customers and hearing what's going on is critical. And I would believe I mean, you see it all the time. Kim Rivers is always at the grand openings of all of these. And, and I don't really believe it's maybe just a photo op. It is a good photo op, but I'm sure she's there just to kind of see and get a pulse for what's happening. But at the same part, you know, she can't be in all 100 Florida dispensaries at all the time. She's got to rely on her leadership structure in order to make, you know, informed kind of decisions and recommendations. And it does start with the bud tender when the customer comes in and understanding that, like, it's not about promoting just the products that we have. It's about promoting correct products. And Kelly and I kind of go back and forth all the time on that. So I guess, Matt, back to you is like, how does Bud Tender, who's being kind of pushed with management to push a certain type of product, but knows internally this other product is probably best for his customer. Like, how does he balance that perspective when dealing one-on-one with these customers? It's a great question. To be honest, like, I don't know if there's one right answer or one wrong answer in the sense that it really depends upon what you value most. Like if the manager in the store doesn't appreciate the fact that you're willing to pay, you're willing to play the long-term game. And what I mean by that is you're actually trying to develop a rapport with the customer such that your customer attention increases and the amount of money they're actually spending in your store will increase correspondingly. If they're not actually willing to recognize the merits of that approach, there are some times in any occupation whereby you just have to, you know, suck it up and, and implement the approach that is being asked of you. Ideally, as I said, you do have an organizational structure whereby they're actually open to receiving feedback, i.e. if you feel the approach is flawed, that the, the C-suite is open to receiving you know, critical uh, feedback as regards the limitations of the approaches they're putting in place. But I think it's really just an individual question. Like Personally, when I was a bud tender, I actually had to leave the first store I worked with because I kind of clashed heads with the manager on the basis that to the very point you just made, he was asking us to recommend products, which he himself was telling us he would never smoke. And I found myself in the situation, I was like, well, you're asking me to jeopardize the relationships I'm building with the customers, despite the fact that you yourself have said openly to every single member of your staff that the products are, you know, dirt quality, but yet you just want to move them such that you can, you know, get a reward from your manager and so on and so forth. So I think it honestly just comes down to like, do you do you believe in yourself? Do you believe that if you leave the store, you're gonna be able to get employment elsewhere? I personally think that the best bulb tenders are in very short supply, and I don't think any of them will ever have difficulty gaining employment elsewhere. 
if the store they're working with isn't actually willing to implement an approach whereby they put the customer first. I do. I think that that's brilliant. I want to add one other thing too, is that I think in the United States, there's it differs state to state too. Right In Colorado, that problem is so prevalent that I have specific dispensaries I'll go to and I'll talk to blood tenders. And in Colorado, most dispensaries are vertically integrated with the grow. right? And so every single time I pretty much say no to the first three or four products they recommend because right. it's products that they are trying to push. And then like once we start talking, they open up a little more and they get a little, a little more warmer. And then I can actually see exactly what products they're trying, what they like. And, but if, if I wasn't aware of that, I, they would just guide me down that the wrong path versus somewhere like Washington. When I was in, in the state of Washington, they, the retail dispensaries can't be vertically integrated. They can mm-hmm. still provide like incentives to the bun tenders, right? Like certain brands can be like, Oh, like if we hit these numbers, I'll give you some product or X, Y, Z. But I've noticed that it's, it's a lot that disparity is not nearly as prevalent in like a state of Washington because it's by design versus like a state of Colorado. So I think it it is a case-by-case study even further down in the United States, at least. I have a question, and this is maybe just more of like an inexperience, but just I've never been a bun tender. So are they paid hourly or are they commission-based saying, like, if you do X amount of total sales, you make commission on top? Is it is it structured like that? I think back to Phil's point, like it, it very much varies state by state. I think it all just comes that, back to the regulations that they put in place. I know in Canada... It is entirely done in terms of hourly compensation, but there are states out there whereby you do get compensation depending upon the sales which you 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 reach, such that there are incentives in place for you to push products that you yourself might not actually consume. Yeah, and that's where it really it really gets tricky. And uh, just a little story today when we were having you on, I went into the New York store for a medical purpose because I wanted to ask questions like that I wanted to bring up with you. And what my experience was very non-pushy. I asked him questions. Mm-hmm. He pushed me in the direction, but he didn't recommend products aggressively where in some of the West Coast states, they were a little more aggressive with like, this is the one you should go for. This is it. And it was always the higher price product. So I wonder, like Kellen was saying, it probably is varying state to state. And of course, New York being just medical only, probably very different experience with the blood tender style. So I guess the next question would be how to build trust and to blend the education and the experience between the consumer and the blood tender. Because obviously the perspective of the individual is going to be not the perspective, but the end result of the experience is going to be influenced depending on what they know, what they don't know, assumptions in that experience. So how how does that experience work? Because like sometimes people walk in and ask questions like, hey, like I want to get stoned, right? And mm-hmm. they want to get a certain high THC product, but maybe the bud tender is like, you might want to consume more of like a one-to-one ratio. So how, do, how does a bud tender kind of blend the educational level of understanding the consumer and how to communicate that information? I think you've got to pick your battles. Like it's a lesson on it the hard way, which is that no two cannabis consumers are the same. Ideally, if someone's coming in, they'll have an openness to receiving information that sort of conflicts with their existing perspective, like one such being the whole indica sativa hybrid dichotomy that exists in the industry. As much as I would like to think that it's only a matter of time until that sort of fades out of existence, the reality is there is a cohort of cannabis consumers who are so bought into that that even in the mentioning that this might not actually be what they think it is, is enough for them to walk out the door. And I had that happening once and I just realized, okay, in certain incidences, the customer is always right. And I say that's kind of a contradictory statement in the sense that I'm saying in certain incidents, the customer is always right. Because more often than not, you know, you do have to sort of test the waters. It's like, you know, when you're, when you're taking a bath, like you kind of dip your toes in the water to see is it too hot. And if the water is nice and warm, you know, you can go in when it's too hot and you probably don't want to go in for a little while yet. So the way I approach it is that, 
you know, you're not trying to completely change someone's perspective in that single encounter you're having. Assume that you're going to have 10, 15 encounters with this customer. And in each one of those encounters, provide them with a small snippet of information, which over time will accumulate to change their perspective on the subject. So it really is all about personalization, understanding what the customer wants. If someone comes in and they're saying, you know, I want the, the highest THC indica, I don't think it's the right time or the right place to tell that person that they're wrong. You just have to acknowledge the fact that, okay, what you're asking for is a high THC product, which is going to produce a relaxing effect. Yes. Okay. You don't necessarily have to tell that customer that indica sensitives are bullshit. You just have to understand what is their actual desired experience with cannabis. And then it's your job to recommend products that are ideally going to provide that best experience. Yeah, that's perfectly said. And I hope we flip the Indica Sativa part because I wish you would just say that louder and louder and louder again <laughs> because it is so ridiculous that that continues to be, oh yeah, I got this great Sativa. And it's like, okay, dude, like how many times are we going to talk about this? So Kellen, right. from your perspective, right? Like we've talked about like the high THC, we've talked about the terpenes. I mean, is this all part of the experience of a bud tender kind of communicating from an educational level, working backwards through, you're looking for a relaxed feeling. So here's the kind of path we'd recommend you to take. I mean, I hadn't heard that and I've never been a butt tender, but I think that that's absolutely brilliant. And I got to applaud your soft skills for being able to come up with that. Cause like a lot of people that is like absolutely one-on-one how you deal with like a disgruntled customer or anything like that. Like you take it away from what they're attached to and look for the underlying reason. I think that that's brilliant. And the only thing that I would add to that is that as science catches up with the black market, the more and more genetics that are run on these strains in terms of trying to trace the lineages back and try to either support or disprove the whole sativa hybrid indica. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of it is just shenanigans when you really get into the actual genetic information that's coming out of some of these strains. And, and there are strains, of course, that are higher in linalool or higher in myrosine terpenes. And, and that would be a better um, way to kind of organize the effects from a medicinal standpoint that the cannabis plants provide, but the sativa hybrid indica thing needs to go. It's just, I mean, I understand that it was a good categorization system in the olden days, right? But at this point with more science, we need to come up with a better way to classify the expected consumer experience with what's going on in those plants. We know when that like really became popular. I don't honestly. It's been my whole, uh, honestly, when I was in, I, I bet 12, maybe 15 years ago in high school, I never remember hearing Sativa Hybrid Indica. It has to be something that came about with legalization. I'm not sure. Are you sure, Matt? Do you know, Matthew? It's a great question. And to be honest with you, like, there's still a lot of debate as to what those origins of those terms are actually representative of. Like my, my I was going to say my limited understanding is that it's just a plant structure of cannabis plants. Like an indica is normally shorter in height with broader leaves. A sativa is typically taller in height with narrow leaves. So I think I think we just got to sort of tread carefully in saying that those terms do mean something. Sure. The way we're currently presenting to consumers is just absolute bullshit. Like, let's just call it what it is. Yeah. And the problem, and kind of not to go too far down the rabbit hole, is that we are starting off the relationships we're trying to build with consumers based upon misinformation. And the end result of that is just expectations that can never be fulfilled because we're trying to tell consumers that this product is going to produce this outcome, despite the fact that we all know that that is absolute horseshit. And the problem then that then arises is that that consumer goes home, they consume that product with the expectation that's going to produce a specific outcome. And say, for example, you know, Brian, you go home, you purchase an indica and you're, you're new to the cannabis industry. If you're consuming that right before you go to the bed with the expectation it's going to be relaxing and then it's actually producing a stimulating effect, you're probably telling yourself that cannabis isn't for you. 
But the problem isn't that cannabis isn't for you. You're just being told horseshit information, despite the fact that we should know better at this point in time. I think that's perfectly said. And uh, I mean, for me personally, I mean, it's home, right? Because at my house, my parents would offer me and say, hey, Brian, like we know you typically don't prefer the downers. So here's some sativa. And I look at my dad and I'm like, why? Right. Like, what are we doing here? Like, you're handing me something like someone you don't really know so well, you bought off the black market and they told you this. And we're just passing rumor theory here. And it's like, how many times are we going to take that approach and say, hey, this doesn't work anymore. Like, let's actually go figure out what we're looking for. Because for me, like, I don't want to have to be sliding into the couch and have my eyes closed because I'm so, so stoned and then I have to like put the hood over. So I'm with you. Like, it's very off putting and it's about kind of changing the stigma and starting with the education, which from the East Coast standpoint, we got a long way to go because we just haven't had enough exposure to kind of what you were saying, like good experiences with bud tenders who play such a such an important role with kind of taking the industry and moving it forward. So I want to kind of switch gears and bring up one of the points you said uh, in our previous conversation, why Canada is becoming increasingly irrelevant in cannabis. Can you kind of expand on that? Yeah, it's a, it's a rather controversial viewpoint, but I think Canada became the sort of darling of the cannabis industry by lack of choice in the sense that the only G7 nation that legalized cannabis, you know, every single Fortune 500 company is looking at cannabis and they're, you know, asking themselves, like, is this industry, is this an industry we want to partake in? To which for a lot of companies, the answer is yes, perhaps it's a little bit too early for most. But the, the outcome of that thought process is that, okay, we need to sort of capture market share as early as possible. And with the current regulations that are in place and a lot of these companies being publicly traded, like they can't actually invest capital into U.S. cannabis companies. So the, to the earlier point I made, cannabis became the darling of the cannabis industry by lack of choice. And to sort of expand upon the point that cannabis is becoming or Canada is becoming increasingly irrelevant, we all know it's only a matter of time until such point as the U.S. legalizes cannabis on a federal level. It's going to happen. 68 percent of Americans are now in favor of the legalization. If they don't. I think it just makes an absolute mockery of the premise of America being the sort of uh, free leaders of the world and it, it being a democracy, because if 68% of people want something and they're not actually willing to go out and enact legislative changes, then, you know, is it a democracy? I, 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 on that basis, I think that U.S. has to legalize cannabis. And at that point in time, we're going to quickly realize that a lot of the early capital that came into cannabis shouldn't have actually been invested in those Canadian companies. They should have been a little bit more patient and they should have just decided, okay, what is the right play? I personally don't even think that investing in cannabis companies that are heavily focused on cultivation is the right approach. More than happy to get into that in a later segment of the conversation because my sort of contrarian viewpoint is that the future of the cannabis industry is not cannabis, it's cannabinoids. And I think we're going to see a completely alternative approach to the production of cannabinoids. So all in all, I think all of those billions of dollars that have been invested are going to be written down in the not so distant future. And they're all going to realize that it was just lack of patience that ultimately was the sort of underlying root cause of that problem. Yeah, it's really well said. And, and kind of taking it one step further, I think the fact that those Canadian companies are on the public, the, the, those markets, make it more accessible because they can't tell you how many text messages I get and say, hey, I'm looking to invest in cannabis. Like I want to invest in like Canopy or Tilray. And it's like, how many times do we talk about like, United States, right? like this is this right. is where it is. And, and he's like, well, where are those? And it's like, the same place. And then we mm. kind of get into this conversation about like identifying the right ones. And it's, it just kind of takes a, a tailwind down the wrong perspective. And I wonder, like, I know Big Canopy is trying to come over, right? They talked about the acreage approach and they've made some mm. sort of announcements that they're going to be in here. I think by the, said, at the end of the year, I think he said that. And I mean, we're halfway through 2021 and 
Oh, I wonder if he's going to make good on his prediction. So, Dylan, do you have any thoughts on if those kind of statements that, you know, I think it was David Klein, when he made those statements about he was going to operate in the United States before the end of the year. Do you have any statements on that, Kellen? I mean, at the end of the day, if they have enough money, then they could totally make it happen, right? I am not super privy on how that would work from like a, a stock market perspective if they're because they went public on the Toronto Stock Exchange, right? I don't know how a company can transition from the Toronto Stock Exchange to say the NASDAQ. I know that Tesla did it, but they were listed in America to begin with. So I, that is way above my pay grade as far as like transitioning from the t- Toronto market that's centered around uh, Canada's currency, right? To the United States market that's centered around the US dollar. Because I think that that is going to be the most, that would be the biggest benefit from a monetary perspective. Yeah, you're going to capture some sales, but that's a long ways down the road, right? Like building infrastructure, launching a brand, they could, of course, make that quicker from a, an MA kind of perspective. Right. But I mean, the I think US, that, sorry to interrupt. The US no, players could buy the Canadian companies. Like at a certain point, like they're outpacing the growth. I mean, it, what right. used to be where the Canadians wanted to come in now could be the other way where like, hey, we're the bigger fish now. So like, you and be- maybe, maybe you see Aurora pull something like Time Warner and Yahoo did, right? Where Time Warner came in and, and clearly Yahoo is worth significantly more money and they merged, right? But then the executives at Time Warner ended up having more power than Steve Case did after everything was said and done. And then lo and behold, now you have the executives and the management team at Aurora who now has a very attractive MSO and that exact brand name. But the people that are running the show are the people that were running the show for Aurora, right? Mm -hmm. So there, there could be something like that. I mean, it's just... There's a lot of different uh, avenues for them to take in terms of approaching the U.S. market and getting into the U.S. market. I mean, I think it's a a really, really long shot to say that they're just going to spend the money, go in, buy a license and set up shop in America. I think that's going to have to be done in a much more creative fashion. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And I kind of want to switch gears because I feel like we're just kind of speculating on unknowns (laughs) and unknowns. So between, between the Uber CEO coming out and saying they're going to consider cannabis... The Amazon, which is big, big news, the NFL, the recent news of the Olympian. Matt, like, why are all these massive, massive companies? I mean, Apple announced with the iPhone, the uh, the Apple store, all these massive companies don't have to make these proclamations. Why are they doing this? I think they all know what we know, which is that inevitably the cannabis industry is a is a trillion dollar industry. And if you're if you're a big company like Apple, Facebook, Amazon, you know, take your pick and any of the, the trillion dollar companies that are already in existence. Like you, you have to, you have to penetrate new markets rather aggressively such that you're still considered a quote unquote growth stock. And at the point which these companies start to stagnate, i.e. they're not actually expanding into new markets, people are just going to sell off their stocks in favor of companies that are actually growing at a higher rate. So I think it's honestly just a case of the economics of the cannabis industry is driving a lot of these decisions for Uber as an example. I'm sure they know fine well that it's only a matter of time until they incorporate cannabis into their, their portfolio of the goods that they, uh, they, they transport. I think that's going to happen relatively soon. I would actually be very surprised if they don't actually make a move into the Canadian market relatively soon. BC, which is uh, British Columbia, I should say, which is on the west coast of Canada, I think is ripe for an entrance point by Uber because they could transport products on behalf of cannabis retailers in that specific market. With Amazon, I think Amazon will be one of the most important cannabis companies in the world in a matter of time. The reality is they have all the distribution in place as is. All they have to do is then introduce cannabis into their marketplace. 
it'll be very interesting to see how they approach their entrance into the industry, but just based upon the investments that they're making in uh, cannabis reform, as is, I think they've invested like $100,000, which ultimately for Amazon is pennies on the dollar. But you know, it's, it's a signal that they are actively investing in this. And companies like Amazon don't make those investments unless they feel as though they're going to get an ROI on that investment. So inevitably, Amazon's going to enter the industry. My prediction is that they're probably going to do a medical play to start. And I think then over time, they're probably going to introduce adult use into that framework. But yeah, I think it's just the economic state. They know there's money being made and ultimately they are for-profit entities. And it'll be a huge missed opportunity if they don't explore the idea of actually monetizing or capitalizing on cannabis. Yeah, I think uh, we were talking to some other highly intellectual individuals and they they just said that for Amazon, it's just another another brown box to ship. You know what right. I mean? Mm. Which is kind of depressing, like, but... Uh, at the end of the day, like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I hate to, I hate to agree because there, there is something special about cannabis. Like the, the culture of cannabis is extremely different versus that of any other industry. Like in it, name another industry whereby people from across the world are actively communicating on platforms like LinkedIn and uh, Twitter and sharing ideas. Like, have you ever seen employees at Burger King having conversations with the employees at KFC as to, you know, potential best practices or ideas, et cetera? It just doesn't happen. So I hope that it doesn't just become another brown box. But if I was asked, I think you're, you're probably correct. Convenience factor is just so hard to do from Uber standpoint, right? You can get your Uber Eats, you can get your Drizzly Booze, and now you can get your, your cannabis. You can get like the trifecta three in one. And to kind of push back on, on Amazon, like those are the type of small, small steps that get announced to the world. And for the majority of the world, it's nothing. Right. It's, mm. it's just another news. But I think for the people in this room and for the industry, that's a massive, massive sign. We're talking mm. about one of like the global leaders coming out and making a public statement saying that, like, we're not going to drug test anymore. Now they're going to start making, you know, financial commitments. These are all steps, like you were saying, so that when they reveal themselves and they're like, hey, we're in the space, people are going to be like, mm. oh, my God, no way. When did Amazon come in? And we're all going to be like. <laughs> back in July in 2021, they started taking all these steps forward. And like that's where these small steps kind of combine into these massive boulders with the, the movement of the industry. Right. Any predictions on next big company to, to kind of make an announcement coming in? I think Google is going to make some pretty big announcements in the not so distant future. I've had conversations with creators on YouTube, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google. And they have said in private that Google or uh, Alphabet rather is actively reaching out to them, offering monetization on the platform for the very first time. What that suggests to me is that the current conundrum of cannabis companies not able, aren't being uh, in it, their, their inability, I should say, to access programmatic advertising capabilities of YouTube and all the other platforms which are under the Alphabet umbrella. I think that's going to change. And that gets very interesting for companies like Leafly and Weedmaps, because albeit their advertising capabilities are sophisticated, they are nothing in comparison to that of Google. So I think they're going to be the next big company that makes an announcement on that. I think they're going to follow Apple as a starting point in that they're going to allow cannabis marketplace apps to actually sell cannabis through the apps that have been listed on the Amazon store. And I think the next step is they're going to make a more sort of broad announcement that Canadian cannabis companies are allowed to advertise on their platform. And then pending the federal legalization of cannabis in the state, I think then US operators will then be able to access their platform. You think Google will end up killing those businesses you said or do you think he'll, he'll swallow them up because how does that work because it's really hard i mean it's almost nearly right. impossible to fight a titan like that and sure mm-hmm. they've got a stranglehold on the industry now like you're saying as soon as a massive fish comes into the to the water is like the game's substantially different 
they've done this at Yelp. Like history is a habit of repeating itself and use that as a perfect case example as to what happens. Like what they're probably going to do is they're going to scrape all of the data which is being accumulated on these platforms. And as a consumer, it's all about removing friction, or I should say for a company, it's all about removing friction for consumers. So as opposed to you having to click on Weed Maps and actually interacting with their platform, they're just going to surface that information in the search bar itself. And that's exactly the playbook they use to kill Yelp. And I will not be one bit surprised when history repeats itself. Yeah, I mean, Amazon did it with uh, Allbirds, right? They sell batteries. They, they scrape the internet for products that they can resell. And they rebuild it. And I can't blame them because obviously at the end of the day, data is king. But right. I mean, it's, it's one of those where as these massive conglomerates just keep swallowing up, swallowing up bigger pieces of the pie, there's only five or six companies. But that's a conversation for a different time. I don't want to take it too far down that rabbit hole. So the next topic I wanted to bring up is cultured cannabinoids. What do you mean by that? Yeah. This to me is probably the most interesting of all trends and the trend I probably spend most time, or I should say that the trend I pay closest attention to in the industry, because to sort of offer a little bit of context before we dive into what culture can are, I think it's important to remember that right now as an industry, we currently have access to two, maybe three cannabinoids, like in, in the sense that we've commercialized CBD and we've commercialized THC. It seems like we're sort of on the path to commercialize CBN. I guess you could make the argument that Delta 8 has been commercialized. I think that's a very short-term play. I think a lot of those operators are going to fade out of existence because the regulators are going to make it as such. However, there are about 180 cannabinoids that we know of. Now, the problem is the current genetics that we have make it such that it is very inefficient from a cost standpoint to produce those cannabinoids in a quantity that would actually allow for the commercialization of them. Now, that is the what I call the agricultural cannabis supply chain. We plant cannabis crops in the ground. They produce a flower. We extract cannabinoids from that biomass. Typically, it's about 22% if you're you know, good at actually cultivating cannabis. However, what culture cannabinoids are is a completely, completely different alternative to the existing supply chain that we have in place. So what culture cannabinoids are is effectively we're using fermentation tanks. And we are using an approach whereby we are effectively using... Um, biosynthesis to produce cannabinoids. Where this gets very, very interesting, and uh, Ben, who is the, the CEO of a company called Salibra, completely blew my brain on this topic because I, I was completely against the idea that a different alternative could emerge to the cultivation of cannabis to ultimately obtain access to cannabinoids. But the approach which he presented to me is that they're going to be able to produce these cannabinoids at about 10% the cost of what it currently costs today to produce cannabinoids. And better yet, they're going to be able to produce each and every one of those 180 cannabinoids I referenced. Now, what that does, in my humble opinion, is that it completely changes the game. At that point in time, it is no longer a cannabis industry. It's a cannabinoid industry. Now, I think there's going to be like a small percentage of the market that will remain a cannabis industry. Ultimately, if you want to, if you are a consumer who has a preference for dried flour, then the only way to produce dried flour is ultimately to cultivate cannabis. However, I think we're going to see a complete expansion of the market whereby all of the CPG companies, so like any Fortune 500 company that is a CPG company, is going to commit to the cannabis industry, and they're not going to be acquiring cultivation facilities. They're going to be working with these cultured cannabinoid companies such that they can obtain access to any and all of the 180 cannabinoids that they want. And then they're just going to start adding them to their existing product portfolios as an ingredient. And to me, that is the future of the industry. And that's why I like to say the future of cannabis is not cannabis. The future of cannabis is cannabinoids. I think it's perfectly said, and I know this is bad uh, audio, but Kellen has a massive smile on his face. So Kellen, you want to take, a, take that to the next level? Yeah, I actually saw a little uh, pretext. I worked my graduate degrees in metabolic engineering. I worked on uh, metabolic engineering of E. coli to manufacture a molecule called 
adipic acid, which is used to make nylon is the precursor for nylon. So I was a really, really big fan of the technology ever since I've been an undergrad. Um, it, the applications are endless. The, the couple issues that are going to have to be navigated before the consumer accepts cultured cannabinoids. And, and as far as the cannabinoid industry as a whole, I couldn't agree more. I think that at the end of the day, even hemp and these CBD companies are also have THC as an inventory product that they just can't sell right now. So regardless, it's all going to fall under one umbrella in my opinion. But as far as cultured cannabinoid goes, there's going to be a couple obstacles that need to be tackled. The biggest one that I haven't come up with a solution yet, which of course there's going to be a lot smarter people working on it than me, but it's going to be classified as a GMO, right? Mm. And so you're not going to have any access to the European market unless you have significant lobbying that goes in to change those laws. Because at the end of the day, that molecule is being manufactured by a genetically modified organism, right? Whether it's yeast or E. coli, depending on how you want to navigate the the IP and patent world, Mm. right? That's going to be one of the major hurdles that needs to be tackled from a consumer standpoint. The other obstacle I see that could potentially be detrimental to the culture of cannabis is right now, there's only a couple of companies that can technically utilize E. coli or yeast to manufacture THC or CBD. And that is solely based on the patents that they have on Mm. THCA synthase and CBDA synthase. So the actual enzyme that converts CBG, the precursor to either CBD or THCA, CBDA, those are patented. So then you're either going to have to utilize some sort of CRISPR technology to generate a custom enzyme to be able to manufacture that, right? Or you're going to have to go after a different cannabinoid. And, and there's a couple companies in America. One is Criola, right? That I don't know if I pronounced that right. We, we chatted with uh, Jeff at Criola and, and they're actually doing CBG because of that exact situation, right? And so what that tees it up for and... I agree with you on this is that the fortune 500 companies are licking their chops for this, licking their chops at this right now. And it's because that entire process is patentable. So they can go out and start patenting these enzymes and then they can own the process. And now big Mm. pharma has their means of running monopolies for 20 plus years. Right. And when they have the opportunity to run monopolies, they find ways around the GMO hurdle that I mentioned previously but that that's where I think that it, it could be a big threat to cannabis culture. And I mean, it could potentially, I see it going this way. I see CBD and THC being solely derived from agricultural means, right? And I see the rest of the 138 plus mm. cannabinoids most likely being manufactured either synthetically through like a biomimicry process. That's like your traditional organic chemistry where they mix a bunch of stuff together and stir it up into that like a potion, right? (laughs) Or through uh, metabolic engineering yeast or E. coli. And then they're going to kind of utilize a lot of those cannabinoids for pharmaceutical and medicinal purposes, right? Which I'm not going to say if that's good or bad, if there's other cannabinoids that should be uh, available from a recreational standpoint and what that whole kind of situation looks like down the line. But those are definitely going to be some of the hurdles that will need to be crossed. And I mean, I don't think it's it's an if. I just think it's a win, especially if you look at, at Kronos and the amount of money they're pouring it pouring into biosynthetic means. And and at the end of the day, the pharmaceutical companies see the opportunity to patent those enzymes and own that supply chain aspect. 
and, and there will be money in it. So it's just a matter of when. I don't know exactly. I don't have a, a great prediction on when that's actually going to kind of play out. But that's those are my opinions on the the obstacles that that technology is going to have to go through to be able to be commercial commercially viable for what consumers. Sort of, what sort of time frame are we talking about for that? Because like we have such a disconnect from a global standpoint, even like a domestic standpoint between the West Coast and the East Coast. Like, what type of time frame do you think, Matt? Are we talking about where? These other cannabinoids are going to rise in popularity. We did a really interesting study where we found the massive difference from a search trend standpoint on THC and CBD based on location. And it was really surprising when you kind of correlated back to like which states were recreational, which ones were not. So, I mean, from an educational standpoint, like where are we from a time frame that you think it'll be more commonly understood of this cultured cannabinoid? Based upon the information that I've been provided, I think five years is a pretty good timeline. And the reason why I say five years is that my understanding is that the company which I referenced earlier, Sleeper, they're going to start commercializing CBG at the beginning of next year. Now, because this is such a new technology and there still is like a lot of R&D that has to be done before they can necessarily commercialize these products, I think, I think they're probably going to take a few years just to actually reach scale whereby they can produce these cannabinoids in such a quantity that they can actually meaningfully supply the market based upon the demand for them. I don't think there's going to be any shortage of demand. Like if, if they can actually produce these molecules at about 10% of the cost of what cannabinoids are being produced at today, then to me, that is enough to drive consumer adoption of this approach versus the alternative. I think Keenan brings up a fantastic point, which is I'd say another hurdle this particular sort of subsection of the industry is going to have to overcome, which is that from a consumer standpoint, a lot of people have in their mind that you know synthetic cannabinoids are bad. Coming from Ireland, we were always told that like never consume what's called spites. And a lot of people actually find it very hard to make a distinction between something which is produced via biosynthesis versus something which is synthetic. So albeit these molecules will actually be organic, in reality, I'd say for a large percentage of consumers, they're going to have it in in their head that these are actually synthetic compounds. And because of all the sort of mass hysteria regarding the vape crisis, which actually proved to be actual synthetic cannabinoids, not biosynthetic cannabinoids, I think from a consumer education standpoint, there are huge hurdles that have to be overcome before you're going to see consumers meaningfully adopt them. So that's why I say about five years, it could prove to be a little bit longer than that, but it'll be very interesting to see then in Europe, if the same investments are actually made to produce these, you know, quote unquote, state-of-the-art custom-built cultivation facilities for cannabis or whether they perhaps just skip a step, whether they, as opposed to building out those cultivation facilities, they actually just start to build out these fermentation tanks as opposed to necessarily pursuing that path such that they just skip one step in favor of adopting what is a more sort of modern technology. I'm going to take the other side of that approach though. I disagree. I think if you could get a product for $21 or product for let's say $8, you're not going to really look at the back and see GMO. Not like I, I don't think there's enough information that can be consumed in one of these experiences where you can kind of go through its THC, CBD, terpenes, understand the type of product type, where it was grown. There's just too much going on. So at least in my opinion, I think people will be more trusting. I mean, people buy D8 products all the time off the internet and have no idea what is actually happening, right? Like every time we talk to someone about that, they're like surprised. They're like, no, it's definitely regulated. And it's like, what makes you think that? And they're like, because it, we, I can buy it on the internet. And I was like, that's like, terrible. Like, <laughs> you heard of Silk Road, right? Like you can buy <laughs> That's not how that works. And that's where I kind of, I, I challenge that thought. And I mean, we, Kellen and I dove into this a bunch of times. I, I just don't see, it's just so much information to communicate in such a, tiny amount of time. And that's only one product, right? And I think price is such a differentiating factor when it's a new consumer on 
$21 or $8, substantial difference. And if, if they can drive that cost down, I might be willing to play in. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the cost is even more so if you're looking at like CBC or even mm. other cannabinoids that like are prevalent in less than 0.1% in a natural right. cannabis plant. And now you're able to manufacture it at scale with bioengineering because like you don't have to grow it. You could literally make literal ton of <laughs> cannabinoid in a, in a couple days with, with right. this technology. And like, instead of like, okay, we planted the seed, like we'll come back in uh, 14 weeks and we'll harvest the plant and then we'll cure it and then we'll extract it. And maybe next, next September we'll have, have a, a couple kilos for you. (laughs) (laughs) Fingers crossed, no early frost in Colorado, right? Like fingers crossed, nothing terribly wrong uh, happens. Can you imagine that spreadsheet cell? (laughs) (laughs) it's it's on that day i I will definitely vote in favor of moving towards the information we can extract from spreadsheets because it's just obvious i i think to individuals like ourselves on this call consumers are so price sensitive in the industry like despite the fact that i'm not the biggest advocate of this whole idea of you know the highest here the highest thc percentage products the consumers don't give a shit about my opinion consumers are gonna (laughs) consumers are gonna vote with their dollars and if someone comes along and they say, you know, there's a GMO product, which is going to cost 50% less versus that of the other product I have. And, you know, it was produced via the cultivation of cannabis. I think we all know what they're going to choose. There might be a very small percentage of consumers who opt for a different option. But I think long term, this has to be the future of the industry, if not for, you know, a failure on the part of these companies to execute in their R&D. Yeah. And for consistency as well. So right. I think that was... Uh... We could spend 50 minutes on that conversation. <laughs> so let's take a different approach, Matt. Your biggest misconception since you've been in the cannabis space? My biggest misconception is that we're all in the industry for the same reason. I think that there is a, and I kind of articulate that in a different way, this assumption that there is a culture of cannabis. I think there is many cultures of cannabis. I think that for myself, I'd like to think I'm part of the culture of cannabis whereby I am much more interested in our patients receiving access to cannabis versus that of our companies making profits from the plant. I think that the new sort of cohort of people coming into cannabis are much more interested in cannabis from a commercialization standpoint. And that's not to say that I'm not. I am deeply interested in what's happening from a commercialization standpoint. But if I was to sort of define the, the culture of cannabis that I sort of recognize, it is this idea that, you know, we are a community, we are collectively seeking to change the world for everyone's best interest. My assumption was that everyone sort of shared those ideals. I think I've quickly realized that, as I said, there are many different cultures of cannabis. That is the one I recognize most with or self-identify with. But I've just come to accept that there are you know, very different motivations for joining the cannabis industry. And I, I don't look down upon anyone who is coming into the industry such that they can generate a dollar. I do look down upon people who are coming in to screw people over. That is something I have no tolerance for, nor will I ever have a tolerance for. However, that was sort of an assumption which has recently been challenged. And I just kind of came to accept that there is no single culture of cannabis. Rather, there is multiple that exist within the industry. You could sum up your experience into a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation. What would that be? Play the long game. This industry is just getting started. And I think there's a lot of people who come into this industry with the intention of making a quick buck. I think this industry is going to change the world in ways which we can barely begin to even estimate. And honestly, I think if you're, you're in this industry and you're willing to play the long game, you will be significantly rewarded as a result of that. And that might mean, you know, taking a lesser down position such that you work with a company who actually values your values and kind of go back to the original conversation of, you know, not asking your staff to recommend products, but you yourself would not consume items like that. I think a lot of people are, are really in a rush. I think a lot of people feel as though 
if they don't really sort of make the most out of the industry right now, they're going to miss out on the chance to. The reality is cannabis remains illegal in 99% of nations around the world. We are all going to look back upon these times and laugh at how early we were and how you know we were overlooking the fact that it was just getting started. So I think if you play the long game and you're patient and you're willing to work with people who share similar values to you, I don't see a world in which you don't actually benefit from the, I guess, the commercialization of cannabis, but just, just play the long game. Short-term games are great. But unfortunately, short-term games usually come at a cost. So yeah, to play the long-term game. Perfectly said. All right, prediction time. We've talked a ton about the importance of bud tenders and the role that they play in helping consumers find the right product. In my opinion, for a bud tender to make an accurate product recommendation, the customer needs to be able to answer a few basic questions about their own personal experience and what they're looking for. Matt, what do you think is the most important item for a consumer to know about themselves prior to asking a bud tender for a recommendation. The cannabis affects everyone differently. That to me is, is a, if, if we want to change the conversation away from the indica sativa dichotomy, that singular piece of information is enough to completely turn the industry on its head in terms of you know, phasing that out of its existence. The reason why is that the indica sativa hybrid dichotomy is based on the assumption that the same effect you have from a cannabis product is going to produce the same effect for that of myself. We're quickly beginning to realize that each of us has a pretty unique endocannabinoid system. The way cannabinoids and terpene profiles interact with each of us is, is very personalized. So if I'm, if I'm a consumer, you know, granted, I can take some of the feedback which has been offered from a bud tender from a quality standpoint. Like as an example, if Keelan was a bud tender and he told me that this product was high quality, I could take that at face value. However, if he was to inform me that this product is going to equal this outcome, I would then sort of cross-reference that with, yeah, that's what affected you, but I know that cannabis affects everyone differently. So I have to sort of work through the process of what is the right chemical composition of cannabis for that of myself. So I think that singular piece of information is enough to completely turn the industry in its head and finally phase out this indicacity of the economy. Kellen? I agree with that. I would just add that um, consumers need to understand why they're going into to purchase any cannabinoid product, right? And also what they're comfortable, what means or media they're comfortable consuming that cannabis with, right? Um, a lot of people are uncomfortable smoking for health health reasons, right? So going in knowing that you're not going to purchase something that you're going to light on fire and mm-hmm. you're using it to help you sleep is going to help the bud tender guide you through that selection process the first time. Um, I think those two factors coupled with understanding that everyone reacts differently to, to cannabinoids and terpenes together, I think that could really make a make your, if you're a first time consumer, it'll make your experience so much more enjoyable. What do you think, Brian? I think for me, it's about, you don't always have to be consuming cannabinoids to get hot. Sometimes I've got pain and I want CBD to kind of alleviate the pain. I don't want to take Advil. So that's the route I can take. Or if I am looking to feel kind of light, I'll take like a two to one because the balance of the cannabinoids together make me feel like my intended hopeful, hopeful perspective. So I think it's about having more chances than not, right? Like you go in there, you can have an off-putting experience, maybe a bad bud tender, maybe a bad product choice, maybe a bad day. There's so many variables at play and it's not one size fits all. And it's one of those where it'd be great if it was like a locked in science where this product will make you feel like this for this individual, but we're not there yet. So I think being right. patient and trying different product types and kind of taking the variety of different information recommendations you had, I think will be the perfect way for people who are experiencing cannabis for the first time to not have a one and done experience. It's not the same type of cannabis where you had an edible in college 
and you got so scared you couldn't leave your room. It's not the same space anymore. Very, very different. And it starts with understanding that you have to know about all things in place, what you're doing, and how the game works. So, Matt, before we wrap, where can our listeners get in touch with you? I'll link up everything in the show notes. If you want to reach out, I'd say do it on LinkedIn or Twitter. Alternatively, funny enough, I probably receive less messages on Twitter. So if I was like sort of reverse engineering myself, I'd say that's probably the best place to reach out to. I'll probably respond to you faster on there versus that on LinkedIn just because I get so many messages of people pitching me services I don't want on LinkedIn. So that I've kind of reached the point in time whereby I filter a lot of that out. But um, yeah, if you want to check out 4PM, it's just F-O-U-R-P-M.co newsletter we send out every single day um, with the exception of some if there's no news to report. But um, yeah, LinkedIn, Twitter, probably the two best platforms to, to reach out on. Yeah, I would definitely recommend it for everyone out there that's listening. It's well worth the read and it's not too long. If you're one of those where ah, I don't really have time to read, you can quickly skim through it. And sometimes if I'm looking for an rush, I just go right down because I'm just looking for Matt's take on it. So I definitely recommend it. Thanks for your time, Matt. Appreciate it. Look forward to talking to you soon. My absolute pleasure. Appreciate the invitation, Jets. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name is Kira Reed, and I'd like to invite you to be inspired by the women who are leading in the cannabis industry. Each week, we will discuss empowerment, leadership, and what it means to be a woman in charge in marijuana, hemp, and CBD. As the founder of the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, I have had the great pleasure to get to know many brilliant and talented women who are CEOs, executives, politicians, advocates, and community leaders that are focused on creating a cannabis economy that is just, fair, and equal. We'll learn how these women make decisions, how they navigate a predominantly male industry, and what they're doing to level the playing field for women. I hope you'll join us.